Well, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, or your devices, I invite you to take them out and uh, turn with me to uh, the book of First Kings. We're going to be in chapter 19, and if you have your core guides, you can take those out, a uh, place for you to take notes on the front, devotionals on the inside, and um, we keep the core guides even though we're not in a core group session right now. We publish these um, year-round so that you have a way to... Uh, keep connected with the things that we talk about on Sunday morning. So I hope you're interacting with those. Take those out. Um, We started a new worship series last Sunday uh, on the life uh, in times of Elijah, kind of standing in the gap for God. And we started with um, looking at chapter 17. And it's kind of, Elijah's story is told... uh, in 1 Kings 17, 18, 19, 21, and then a little bit into 2 Kings. And uh, our, our, the series right before this one was on James. It went a week long, and, um, which is, it was okay. It's a good thing, except it put, poses a little challenge for us today. Um, about six months ago, I kind of settled on 1 Kings 19, um, specifically to preach on graduation Sunday. And so we kind of have to go from chapter 17, where we started last week, and jump over chapter 18 to get to chapter 19. Um, Next week, we'll go backwards and look at specifically in detail at chapter 18. So to give you the context of uh, what happened in chapter 18, because it kind of informs chapter 19, it kind of goes like this. Elijah was on the run, as we talked about last week. He was in the wilderness. He was staying with the widow at Zarephath, and God was providing for their needs. There's this severe drought and famine in the land, and people are hungry, and there's been no rain. And after three years of this, the word of the Lord came back to Elijah and, and God asked him to go talk to King Ahab. You need to go confront this guy again. Now, Ahab was the evil king at the time, and, and the Bible records Ahab uh, at this point in time as uh, having done more evil in the sight of God than anybody else before him. Um, so Elijah's a bit tentative, a little bit fearful about going to confront Ahab at this time. Um, Ahab thinks that he is a troublemaker, and yet Elijah goes. He is obedient, he's faithful to God, and he goes and he tells Ahab, we kind of need to settle this. You know, you have steered the people and have told them that it's okay to worship Baal, and I am holding out that Yahweh is our God and he is the supreme king, ruler one true God. And so to kind of prove that, let's have a little contest. So you gather up all your prophets, all the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah. In total, there's 850 prophets that Ahab brings together. And, and gather them and bring all of the people of Israel. So this is all of the northern kingdom that we talked about last week. You know, after Solomon... The country split into two. Two tribes went south. The other ten tribes went north. So we're talking about the ten northern tribes of Israel. And you gather all of those people and you bring everybody to Mount Carmel. And what we're going to do at Mount Carmel is this. We're going to both set up a sacrifice. And we're both going to pray that our God or your God or Yahweh God would would bring fire uh, to the sacrifice. So... Ahab gathers all the people, all the prophets, 850 of them are there, and they, uh, Elijah and these prophets of Baal, they set up their altars, and Elijah allows them to go first. He's like, okay, let Baal do his thing. And so the prophets of Baal and Asherah begin to pray. Nothing happens. Elijah, he taunts them a little bit. Uh, nothing happens. Finally, it is Elijah's turn, and so he builds his stone altar, 12 stones. He puts the sacrifice on top, and 
And then he says, dig a trench all the way around it. So they, they dig a trench, and, and then he just soaks the sacrifice, fills up this trench with water. And mind you, we're in a drought, so he's using a precious resource of water. And, and this really flies in the face of Baal because Baal was the fertility god and was the one who was said to bring the rains. And yet he had failed. And so Elijah, all this pageantry goes into the sacrifice. And, and, then, and then Elijah prays. And he calls down fire from heaven. And it comes down and it consumes the sacrifice. It, this is a fire that burns the rock. It burns up. It licks up all of the water. It is totally gone. And so here we are at the end of chapter 18. Elijah is, I mean, this is like a spiritual high. This is like a victory, right? This is like Elijah's Super Bowl win. I mean, this, he's, you know, Mount Carmel, he puts on that, you know, the big foam fingers that say number one. Yeah, Yahweh's number one. And, you know, the camera pans to him. He says, I'm going to Disney World. And, you know, we'd think that the next day he's going to be riding around town on a fire truck, you know, with the parade. You'd think that after a huge victory like this that there'd be some celebrating to do because the people repented. Many people repented and turned back to Yahweh. So you'd think that this was a huge moment that needed some positive attention and celebration. But it doesn't, it doesn't play out like that. It plays out a little differently than what we might expect. So I would invite you... Um, to stand with me, um, we're going to read First Kings chapter 19 here. You know, we get to these monumental victories in our life, things that we set out at, as these huge milestones of accomplishment, you know, like a new job or a promotion or, uh, you know, a marriage or a childbirth. You know, you high school graduates, we have set up high school graduation as achieving that as being a high point in your life. I mean, things that you have been working for years to achieve, you did. And we are so thrilled to be able to celebrate that with you. Sometimes after high points, though, we experience a, another extreme. And so all of that leads us to these words in 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down on it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. Horeb is also uh, known in the Bible as Mount Sinai. You may have heard of that place. It's the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. You know, there's some chapters in the Bible that I am really glad are included in our scripture. And this is one of those chapters. I'm thrilled that we have the ability to read and learn from, from this account because it really gives us an accurate picture of the reality of human existence. I mean, think about it. And maybe I can just, you know, a series of questions. You can nod your head, raise your hand if you want, or you can just answer yes or no in your heart. But have you ever experienced a time of weakness where you have felt frail and helpless? Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever felt overwhelmed or exhausted or in the language of today like stressed out have you been to those places if you say no I'm I'm at the risk of calling you a liar (laughs) I have to say yes I've been to all of those places it's part of the reality of living life on this earth as, as a human everybody is going to battle these things. And it's, it's good for me to read that even God's superheroes, the ones who are elevated in Scripture as people of immense, massive faith, the, the hall of fame of spiritual superheroes includes Elijah. And so even those people, it's nice to know that they struggled with the realities of human existence just like we do. So uh, I might need somebody to lock the door here because uh, for a few minutes here, we've all traveled to this place, but part of my message this morning is I want to tell you five ways to get depressed and discouraged and overwhelmed and exhausted and stressed out. All right? I mean, because these are just the realities that we deal with. And so... Uh, We're going to spend a little time talking about ways to get stressed out and overwhelmed. And we're going to specifically look at the way Elijah sank into this emotional funk. You ever been in an emotional funk? Yeah, me too. All right, so the the first way that you can get depressed, the way that Elijah did, is he lost perspective. He lost his perspective. Elijah was a successful prophet because he was faithful and obedient to what God had asked him to do. So he was successful, measured by that, but he was disappointed and he felt defeated because the victory that he had on Mount Carmel did not lead to what he had envisioned. The people said they turned to God, but if you follow and you chart the course of their behavior, it was kind of lip service. A few turned, probably, 
But Ahab and Jezebel and the royal house did, did not turn at all. And so Elijah's looking at the results and he's thinking, I'm a failure. I'm not good. At, I'm not cut out to be a prophet of God. I, I, we had this huge victory, and, and even that wasn't even that wasn't good enough. And, and so he's looking at this. He's, he's basing the meager, measurable results that he sees, and he's using the same criteria that the world uses. That you know, success is all about numbers and things that you can measure and increase. That's what the world says is successful. And, and so Elijah's looking at the world standard of success, and he's saying, I'm a failure. He's losing his perspective on what God had asked him to do because he's thinking that he's letting God down somehow. But that's not how, that's not how God works. God bases success in the Christian walk purely on our devotion and faithfulness and obedience to him. He tells us multiple times in the scriptures that he can be trusted with the results. All he asks of us is to be faithful. Elijah was faithful and obedient, and yet he went into this emotional funk because he started thinking in, of his ministry and his life and his success in terms of the way the world measured it. So he's losing his perspective. He lost his perspective that the the war, the spiritual war that he was in, the spiritual war that we are all in in these days, Elijah lost his perspective that the war is actually a lifelong endeavor until Jesus returns and makes all things new and rights all of the wrongs. We are in that spiritual war until the end. Elijah kind of forgot about that. He saw this monumental fire. He called fire out of the sky. And he mistook, or his perspective changed. He lost his perspective that that was just one battle amongst a lifelong of many. Yesterday's victories don't always ensure today's success. And I think Elijah lost the perspective of that. The second thing that uh, Elijah did that kind of plunged him into this depression was, was that he wore himself out. Uh, verse 5, he lay down and he fell asleep. Verse 6, it tells us about the same thing. He ate and then he, he fell asleep again. I mean, this guy has been running at a pace that he just could not sustain for a long period of time. He, he'd really been on the run for three years. And he faced this intense opposition. He dealt with death threats. Um, you know, it's hard work to call people out on their sin. Because when you point out that people are sinning, it doesn't usually go well. People don't usually have a favorable opinion when you, when you say, you know, I think that there's some unconfessed sin in your life. That's what Elijah had been dealing with. He's calling out the people who have turned to Baal and he's saying, no, this is wrong. You need to turn back to Yahweh. This is blatant idolatry, sin, period. That's hard work. Wears you down. He had this huge buildup to the contest in chapter 18 and this monumental uh, victory. But after the victory, after this high point, this spiritual high, he had this crash, this letdown, adrenaline gone. The dude was drained and worn out, period. Not just, not just tired. He was burnt out. You know the difference between being tired and burnt out? How many of you are car guys in here? Car guys? Yeah, I, I shouldn't raise my hand because I don't think I qualify. Um, if you drive a car and you run out of gas, your car is tired, okay? If you drive your car and you don't put oil in your engine and it seizes and locks up, that's being burnt out. Because you can replenish the gasoline. When it runs out, you just fill the gas tank again, right? And your car drives. If you don't put oil in your engine and your engine locks up, it's a much more serious thing, right? Elijah was at the point where he was out of oil. His engine seized up on him. 
It's a hard place to be. It's a massive problem in society today. We are so overcommitted. We get involved in so many things. There's so many different options out there. People want a piece of our time all the time. We have a hard, we've, it's become more and more difficult to say no to things. And there's, we live in a society that convinces us that, that we have to be in everything. We have to have our kids in everything. And, and if we don't, you know, have them in this sport and that, and this music lesson and that, that, that they're actually falling behind. The world lies to us. And so we just, we get on that hamster wheel and we work and work and work and work and we never go anywhere and we just wear ourselves out. We run ragged trying to keep up with, you know, earning more money and more stuff and keeping up with our neighbors because that's what we're supposed to do and it's really a sickening pace when you look around. We're overwhelmed physically, emotionally, Spiritually, mentally, we're just spent. We're running low on oil. If you, so if you wonder why you feel discouraged, if you wonder why you feel depressed, it's probably because you're worn out. Elijah's just plain old worn out. Third way that Elijah kind of plunged into this uh, funk was that he isolated himself from other people. In verse 3, it says, he was afraid and ran for his life. In chapter 17, we, we read about him going out into the wilderness, which was a, a good thing for him at the time. He needed that spiritual boot camp, but you can't stay in spiritual boot camp. God calls you out of that and puts you to work. And, and Elijah had been running around, and he didn't have much of a community around him to give him strength that he could draw on and, and encouragement. And, and so he's isolated himself and... Uh, he literally ran from Mount Carmel, he literally ran 17 miles to Jezreel. So he starts running away from, from Mount Carmel. He's isolating himself. And then when he gets there, he, takes a, he pulls a Jonah. He goes 200 miles straight south down through Israel, all the way down to Hor, or Mount, Mount Sinai. He runs away. Goes the opposite direction of where God had asked him to be. I want you to talk to Ahab. I want you to confront Ahab. You need to be right in the middle of Israel, and I need you to call these people back to me. And he does. He has some success, and then he's afraid, and he runs away. I can't, I can't take the heat anymore. So he goes out into this wilderness. It even, the Bible even says, when we read it, that he leaves his servant behind it's like he's turning in his keys to ministry. God, I'm, you know, here's my key. I, I can't do this anymore. He fires his staff. He gets rid of his servant, you know, his ministry staff, gone. Here's my keys, God. I'm letting my staff go. I'm just going off in the wilderness because I'm ready to die. So he resigns. We find himself, we find Elijah holed up in this cave down at the mountain of God and in Horeb and in Sinai. And so for the most part, Elijah lived his life disconnected from community. And, and sometimes when I look around at us, we get so overwhelmed. And when, when we feel that way, when we feel stressed out, what happens is, is we face the temptation to run away from it all too. When the going gets tough, sometimes the fight-or-flight mechanism, we like to flight. And we run away from people who are there to encourage and strengthen us. We run away from people who hurt us. We run away from marriages that are on the rocks and troubled. We run away from work when it gets tough or, or school when it gets hard and overwhelming and, and we begin to shut down and part of the process is distancing ourselves from people, even the ones who are there to help us. Those who are closest who want to help and encourage us, we're like, you know, I'm not going to let you in. I'm going to build up this wall one brick at a time because you wouldn't understand anyway. I'll just, you know what, I'm going to retreat and I'm going to deal with it on my own. That's what we do. We all need people around us to hold our head above the water when it gets up to here, 
to allow us to breathe. We need the strength and encouragement of a community around us. And Elijah isolated himself, and that sank him further into his depression. The fourth thing that he did is he took his eyes off God. I mean, Elijah stopped focusing on the greatness and the power of God. He had, he had seen some really spectacular miracles in his day, but now he was gripped with fear and he took his eyes off God. He took this fear from a human, this Jezebel queen. He, he received the death threat from her and it just freaked him out and, and he ran. But he's focusing more on what she said than what on God said. And so... Elijah's gaze turned from being upwardly focused to, you know, down right here with blinders on. Oh, my goodness. They're trying to kill me. It reminds me of, reminds me of Brother Peter. Remember, I think it's Matthew chapter 14. Jesus comes walking out on the water. The disciples are out on the boat. Jesus walks out on the water and you know, it's wavy, and there's a storm going on, and, and the disciples are afraid. They don't know who this is, and Jesus identifies himself. Peter says, well, call me out. I want to walk in the water, too, and Jesus says, come on out. So Peter, he just hops right out of the boat, and there he is. He's walking, he's walking on water. Have you ever tried that? I can't do it. But Peter, it... It, the water was like solid ground underneath him. He's walking out on the water to Jesus. And remember what Matthew tells us? Matthew reminds us that Peter took his focus that was on Jesus to start with, who called him out of the boat and said, come on out here, you can do it. Peter turned his focus and he saw the wind he saw the wind and the waves around him. That's what Matthew says. And as soon as he saw the wind and the waves, he freaked out and he got afraid and he started to sink. Remember that? Elijah, the same thing happened to him. He took his focus off God and when he did, he started to sink down into the doldrums of discouragement and depression. The fifth thing that plunged him into this was that he gave up his will to fight. He gave up his will to fight. The verse 4 says, he prayed that he might die. You know, our darkest moments frequently follow our greatest victories. Elijah's discouragement and his exhaustion and his pity party uh, it took away his will to continue fighting the battle. So, you know, when we've lost our perspective, when we're worn out and don't think we can go on, and if we're, when we're soul, we're, when our engines are low on oil, when we've isolated ourselves from those around us and we've taken our eyes off of God, we're susceptible to losing our hope. And the likely outcome is that we'll give up our will to continue fighting, to continue pursuing what God wants us to pursue. You, you know, throw in the proverbial towel, as the cliche says. So most of the time, we retreat into this shell, and we become apathetic. Like, we really don't care about anything anymore, and we just kind of go through the motions and just kind of meander through life, not really caring about anything. But sometimes depression is a huge thing in society right now. It's serious business. Sometimes when we're so discouraged and depressed, we get to the same place like Elijah, and we just want to give up completely, and we ask God, God, just take my life now. This is a superhero of the faith, Elijah, who has sank to this low. So I wonder, can, can you relate to anything that Elijah faced? Can, can you? Would you put your hand up? Can you? I think most hands are up. We, we all experience things like Elijah did. And, and, and I could spend a few minutes telling you how to correct those five things give you some good strategies on how to keep your perspective, how to, um, you know, if you're tired, 
how to rejuvenate yourself, if you're isolated, how to rejoin. I could spend a lot of time giving you some strategies for that. But you know what I've found in my own existence is when I'm at the lows, I don't really need strategies anymore because part of me just doesn't care. Part of me is seized up. My engine is locked, and I can't proceed any further. I don't want strategies because that would require me to engage in something and do some work. And sometimes I think that... Um, it, it only perpetuates the problem. So I'm not going to give you strategies to overcome those five things, but I, I do want to give you some good news. There's good news. In the, this is like a gospel text that we're reading. It's the Old Testament, but there is gospel in this scripture. There's more to the story because God wants to speak to you. There's some of you that are here today because you need this specific word from the Lord. I know it. Because you may be depressed, you may be discouraged, you may feel like you're in a place of hopelessness right now, that things aren't likely to get any better in your life. You may feel terribly alone and that there's no one else that's going through exactly what you're going through and nobody else understands. You may be hiding out in a cave like Elijah questioning the meaning of life. That might be you. The good news is that, that God wants to talk to you. He wants to nourish you. He wants to give you rest. He, he, he doesn't give up on us nearly as quickly as we give up on God. In fact, God never gives up on you. God does not leave Elijah to wallow in his depression. He keeps seeking him out. God keeps pursuing Elijah. And God deals with him with this amazing grace and patience. And, and in this particular story, I see at least three ways that God ministers to, three means of grace in, in, that God uses to minister to Elijah. The first one is... It's kind of narrated out for us in verses 5 through 8. It's eat and rest. God provides food and rest for the prophet. God's first response to Elijah wasn't rebuke, wasn't negative in tone. It was wake up and eat. Nourish yourself. You need food. You need to take care of your health, Elijah. Two times, Elijah's asleep and he's awaken to eat. And God provides food for Elijah throughout all of the Elijah story. Last week we talked about God providing ravens to bring Elijah meat and bread while he was out in the spiritual boot camp at Kareth. And, and this week Elijah is on this pilgrimage away from God and God continually comes after him and says, no, I've got, I've got food for you. I have, I have some provisions for you. God gave Elijah food instead of the death that he had asked for. He gives him this provision for strength and he allows him this time to rest. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do in the moment is rest. Because we won't be able to, to sustain the pace of, of the rigors of, of life. If, if we try and do it without proper nutrition and rest, we'll eventually wear out and become ineffective. We just will sink into that shell of, of who we are, and, and it'll be like we're just going through the motions. This is why God invented something called the Sabbath. Have you heard about the Sabbath? It's a time of rest. The literal, the literal meaning of Sabbath is stop it. Stop it. Cut it out. To be quiet. It's a cessation from all activity. It's a time of rest to refresh ourselves uh, in the Lord. This is what he wants for you. If you're running low on oil, God wants to give you nourishment and rest. And I know what you're thinking. Because I'm thinking the same thing is, I can't afford to slow down because there's so much stuff that needs to get done. We, we're going at this breakneck pace and we have all the stuff that stacks up around us and, and when we say 
slow down and rest in the Lord, the alarm bell sounds and says, no way. The stuff's not going to get done. How, how, how are we to continue on? And, and I'm going to say this. Let me tell you, it doesn't really matter if the house is spotless. It doesn't really matter if your yard is just a little bit overgrown. It doesn't matter if there's some piles of laundry around the house. Sometimes the most important thing you can do is sink into a time of Sabbath rest in the Lord. And God will provide nourishment and rest for you. I think of Jesus. He says, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He's nourishment enough. And in another place, Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. God provides this for Elijah space to eat and rest. And God, the second thing that God does to minister to Elijah, he says, um, it's in a, kind of narrated over verses 9 through 13 in our text. He, he, uh, he gently speaks truth in love to Elijah. Elijah is hiding out in this cave, and God comes to find him, and God asks him the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, when God asks you a question, he's not seeking new information. He knows your heart. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. He asks, but he goes ahead and asks you the question because the information isn't for him. The information is for you to speak it out loud, to verbalize it in the presence of God and let it out. So God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? There's an answer in verse 10. It kind of goes like this. Woe is me. Puts on the Eeyore voice and the Eeyore face. Oh, I'm the only one and everybody wants to kill me and nobody cares like I care. I love how God just kind of ignores that. Doesn't, doesn't, God doesn't respond to that. God just says, hey, buddy, go outside for a little bit. Go outside and stand in the presence of the Lord because the Lord is about to pass by. I'm not going to take what you, I'm not going to answer what you just said there. I just want you to go outside and stand in my presence. And then we move into this part of the narrative that's so picturesque and there's this, there's this rock splitting wind. And it's not just wind. Okay, I've, I've lived near Chicago, and it's called the Windy City for a reason. And so we have seen some ferocious winds, but I have never seen wind that split rocks. The Bible says that the wind on this mountain was strong enough that it split rocks. But God wasn't in the wind. And then it says that there was a, an earthquake I don't think I've ever been in an earthquake. Might be a little unsettling if I was. I think I would remember it, actually. There was an earthquake. God wasn't, God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a fire. A fire. You firefighters who are in here, fires are loud, right? As they consume things and you approach a fire, it gets loud. God wasn't, God wasn't in that fire either. And I'm thinking about, and, and, and this is in some ways, it's not the only interpretation of this text. But I'm thinking of our graduates and others who are starting new endeavors and so forth in life. <clears throat> I think in some ways, the wind the earthquake and the fire um, represent the noise of the world. These are these grandiose ways of getting our attention. The world's good at that. The world's good at... The world spends a lot of money to figure out ways to get your attention. And sometimes... 
the world will scream loud enough in, and they'll be very persuasive in getting you to think that following the ways of the world is actually the right thing to do, and that's the way the things that, have, that are God-ordained. And so sometimes you'll get confused because you'll think that the grand show is God trying to get your attention, and really it's the world trying to fool you. And so there will be wind and earthquakes and fire and surrounding things like success and riches climbing the ladder, um, sexual escapades, you know, keeping up with the Jones, all of those things are going to just come at you like powerful wind and earthquakes and fire to try and get you to follow. But God was not in any of those. God was in the space left behind. It says that... Um, after the fire, there was the sound of sheer silence, an absence of sound that was palpable, the still small voice, as the King James, I think, translates it, in the vacancy left by all the world's noise, you can hear God. So listen for God in the silence in the hidden and ordinary places of life is where God will speak to you. So this sound of sheer silence draws Elijah out of his cave, and, and when he steps outside, God asks him the question again, why are you here, Elijah? Elijah says the exact same thing. And, and God confronts him at this point because Elijah has started to believe some half-truths. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. The verse 14, I've been very zealous for the Lord. That's true. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. That's true. They have broken your altars. That is true. They have killed your prophets. That is true. I am the only one left. That is false. They are trying to kill me too. That is false. Jezebel's trying to kill you. Israel's not trying to kill you. It's like Elijah was saying, I've been doing all the work, which is false. It's like Elijah was saying, I'm the only one who cares, God, and that is absolutely false. And so God patiently and lovingly and softly speaks truth into Elijah, who gets it partially right, but his emotional state is in such a place of disarray that he's starting to believe in some half-truths. And we get to this place when we're in despair and we convince ourselves that we're alone and fighting this battle and nobody else cares like we do and hey god just says to elijah you know what there's still seven thousand people in israel who haven't bowed down to baal and they haven't kissed him we say things will never improve and we get discouraged and overwhelmed and depressed and we start believing our marriages will never get better or, or be rekindled. The spark will never be there again or we, we fear that our health isn't going to improve or get better and that we'll be stuck in our career and there's no hope and, and we have this bleak picture that we paint for us once in a while and God reminds us, you know what, I'm bigger than that. But we tend have the tendency to stew in these emotions and we convince ourselves that God doesn't really care and that uh, even if he did care, he, that he really can't affect any change. And, and that's the place where Elijah was and God comes in and he speaks his truth in a soft, gentle voice. The God of the miraculous. God will work in mighty and powerful and miraculous in loud ways on occasion, but he also... He also speaks in the softest, most gentle whispers. Sometimes when we feel the lowest, God speaks the softest words of love and truth into our lives. And the third thing that God does is he gives Elijah a vision for the future. Verses 14 through 18 kind of lay this out. God continues 
his answer to Elijah, and he points to a future beyond the cave. The cave isn't it for you, Elijah. There's more work to be done. I need to recommission you. In fact, verse 15, God says, go back the way you came. Retrace your steps. And while you're at it, I need you to anoint two kings, and I need you to anoint your successor, who Elisha becomes a close companion, somebody who can um, be a friend to Elijah, so it'll pull him out of that isolation. God says, get back to work. He gives him this vision for the future. It reminds me of the way Jesus approached Peter. After Jesus said, died, was buried, and was resurrected. And and if you remember Peter, he disowned Jesus three times. I don't know that guy. Went into a self-protective mode. The first time Jesus comes back to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Go back the way you came. Do what I have called you to do. That's what Jesus wanted of Peter. The way that Peter could demonstrate his love to Jesus was to obey and be faithful to his calling. When you get into a place that's low, my prayer for you is that you will sink into God's provision and rest in Sabbath. That you would, while you're in that place, that you would allow God to gently speak the truth into your lives and correct the things that you may be believing that are just, a, that's just not true, that are lies. And that through this time of Sabbath rest and through this time of, of hearing the truth of, from God in this soft and gentle way, that, that you will hear the voice of God saying, you can't stay in the cave. I need you to get back to work. I need you to get back to doing what I called you to do. I'm really glad that this chapter is in our book. Paints a picture, an accurate picture of human existence. And I find comfort and help in seeing that this man of God uh, goes to the extremes of, of human experience and emotion as winning and victory and success, yet also the one who experiences the lows, who hits rock bottom. Because that's exactly our existence. That's how we live. So you might be here, sitting here this morning, and you might be at a high point in life. Things might be going well. You might have money and, and nice stuff and a, and a good job, and yet there might be something gnawing at you like, you know what, I really don't feel fulfilled right now. I'm still a little bit down. I feel a little depressed. Some, some of you might be in the cave today, just discouraged and depleted, engine totally out of oil. God will refresh you and bring you out of the slump. And when you think about it, the only thing that can speak to our hearts and bring us out of the caves that we are hiding in is the still, small voice of God. It's the only thing that really brings new life to us. So as we close, I'd ask you to stand for prayer. What what cave are you hiding in right now? Is it doubt? Is it discouragement? Is it fear? Are there things that you are running away from? I just want to remind you that the gentle whisper of God calls out to you. So step out of the cave that you're in. And step into the presence of Almighty God who wants to speak to you. Let's pray.
Lord, we, um, we come before you and humble ourselves at your feet. Lord, I know that there's some of us who are depressed, are discouraged, are overwhelmed, are stressed out. There's some of us who are filled with joy and are seeing great things happen in our lives and and we thank you for that. But Lord, we all need to take time to listen for your voice. I pray that we would know your loving care for us, that you would speak to us softly and tenderly. Lord, would you expose the lies that we have been believing and replace them with with your truth. Lord, give us the rest that we need, the nourishment for our souls that we so long for. And Lord, would you put us back to work? Would you remind us of your calling on our life, that we have a purpose, that we are to extend your grace and love to those around us. And to do that effectively, we need to, we need to have the rest and we need to have the nourishment and we need to hear your voice. But we also need to get out of the cave. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to do so. That we could be fulfilled in you that we could view our lives as a success because we are faithful and obedient to what you ask us to do. We don't have to measure ourselves based on how the world measures things. So we devote our lives to you this morning. We hear you say, I'm calling you out of the cave. And we want to go. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.